Welcome back, everybody. This is an important uh, podcast because I have on here a really well-known doctor who doesn't necessarily coach other doctors, but you'll hear him talking about how he has a professional interaction with them, and I'll let him coin the term. And I was at the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians annual meeting, and I cornered him and uh, Dr. Anonymous, uh, Mr. Anonymous, whomever it may be, in midlife. And it's interesting to hear how we all, and I'm telling you, everybody does, have this midlife question mark. Well, am I doing the right thing or do I want to keep doing this thing? And this reflective interviewing going back and forth to a conclusion where everybody says, yeah, okay, I kind of get it. And so I'm just going to leave it in its current form as I put it on the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians website. That's ASIPP.org. And uh, put a little bit of uh, uh, pain information spin on it. And I'll let you listen to it because uh, it's worth it. Now, one thing uh, I can tell you, that's for sure, and I've had a couple, uh, more than a couple, uh, folks say I need to restart articles and I need to uh, go through references and all, and I completely agree with you, completely agree with you. I'm one of the section editors on uh, one of the largest uh, circulated and read uh, pain journals, and I'm telling you, <laughs> the coolest thing about this journal, Pain Physician, that's what it's called, Pain Physician, is it's free, and it's in complete um, form. You just have to go to ASIPP.org and click on Pain Physician Journal and do a search, and you can see my articles, you can see others, but I think the one to really think is cool is the opioid guidelines. You know, 15 years ago, we were writing these opioid guidelines, and we realized that high-dose opioids are a dead end. And we made some time ago uh, recommendations about 90 uh, morphine milligrams equivalent as kind of that breaking point. Yep, if you got cancer or you got something really serious like arachnoiditis, yep, we're going to we're going to go over that, and it's not a problem. But it all comes down to knowing how to handle those meds. And so we call it an opioid crisis. It's not really a prescription crisis. It's more of a fentanyl heroin crisis. I've been through that. I'm not going to rehash it. But this is a, um interesting kind of turning point if you want to get more information, go to ASIPP.org, Pain Physician Journal. You can search about anything. So I'm going to introduce uh, the Happy MD, and uh, that's really kind of cool. He's a male-trained doctor because um, he left medicine in a way because he got burned out at 40. Uh, it's I can completely see it, but I see it with all of us. But what you do with your next stage in life makes all the difference, and that's what we're going to talk about. So let's get to it. 
Loway Sipians. Welcome back. This is the ASIP podcast, and uh, appreciate you tuning in. This is an interesting interview, and it came from the annual meeting. Um, the Happy MD, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but the Happy MD uh, and I had the chance to sit down with Mr. Anonymous. And Mr. Anonymous is going through, and actually went through, what I know is a very challenging part of any career. When you're midlife and you're touched beyond, you want to know, are you doing the right thing for the right reasons? And part of that is, am I at a career point where I can either go to fork in the road left or fork in the road right? And that's, of course, do I want to be an academic or do I want to be uh, in private practice and private practice has changed so much in uh, many of our careers um, I'm close to sunsetting but uh, I'm not I'm not done yet uh, I look to inspirational people like Gabor Rax and Lax and they're practicing well well into their um, retirement age uh, as did Dr. Raj because of the love of the game and so I think a little bit of that came out in this interview, but I'm not going to call it an interview. This is something I, I saw in uh, the lectures that I attended, which were very good, by the way. I saw that he was a coach. Uh, the Happy MD was a coach. Um, coaching is not consultating. It's not um, doing what we normally do when we go in a room and have a back and forth. Coaching is much more inspirational or what I call motivational interviewing or reflective interviewing where we get to a place through a back-and-forth dialogue that's very skilled. And this happened in this interview. So I just have a little bit of advice for folks in uh, certain parts of their career. Look into coaching because you're natural at it. Uh, being a physician or a care provider, you're used to talking to people that are in sometimes very dark places or very hard places to be. And being a coach is just exactly what it sounds like. It's not necessarily that you're wildly trained, although you could watch a bunch of stuff with uh, a lot of these uh, Internet marketers that talk about coaching. Uh, Tony Robbins comes to mind. Um and you can see what they do. What they do is they take a motivational piece of your gut <laughs> and expand it. And they help you come to the conclusion that you need to come to and feel good about it. So that's what a coach is. It's really a cool thing. Now, the Happy MD came from this little school um, in Midwest, and it's called Mayo. And it's it's kind of a funny backstory, but my first cousin, uh, great guy Tim Lamer, was a uh, a um, resident uh, and attending at Mayo for many many years. Still is, and it's funny because we kind of grew up together in Wausau, Wisconsin, where he lived. We'd go up from the summer and then Denver, Colorado, where I lived. They sometimes come down, but, uh, 
that uh, relationship was a blast. We were basically the same age, and we just went on parallel pathways. So one day, you know, I'm talking to him, and he goes, what are you going to do? I'm going to go to med school, I guess. And, And he's going, I went to med school. Okay, all right, cool. We're talking another day. What are you going to do after med school? Well, I'm going into anesthesia. Well, I'm too. Why are you going into anesthesia? Because I want to be a pain doctor. Well, I do too. And it was just a weird parallel progression. So it was fun. And so he's from that institution, so that's a little close to and near and dear to my heart. Um, and it's, uh, it, it, it's fun to listen to him from that Midwest perspective and his uh, unique perspective as a coach. So uh, I hope you inv- enjoy this episode. It's, it's, it's a fun one because um, I respect them both. And the person he's uh, interviewing, I've known well over a decade, uh, he, he, a very strong, strong intellect doctor. Uh, and uh, I know you'll figure it out. You'll figure out who he is. But enjoy this episode, and uh, I'll see you in the backside. We're at the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, the annual meeting, which means I'm um, running around ambushing folks for a podcast. But this is special because I have a special individual on, and that would be... Dyke Drummond, thehappymd.com. There you go. And what uh, Dyke Drummond, MD, does is... uh, he does some very special work. He's uh, a coach. Um, I won't say a life coach. What would you define yourself as? Well, if if a doctor's coaching another doctor, there's components of life, but there's also a whole bunch of career in there. So I would I would call it executive coaching. Where we train? Trained. Where we trained? Oh, I uh, did my family practice residency in California in the UC Davis system, and my medical degree was from the Mayo Medical School in Rochester, Minnesota. All right, I've heard of the Mayo. I've heard of it. That's like a pretty prestigious. So, um, I want you to just say a few things about um, well, what you just talked about. I mean, how you came into this space. What uh, what brought you here? Well, I burned out of my family practice in 1999 when I was 40 years old. Uh, at the time, I was the uh, second highest producer in our 40-doctor multi-specialty group. It delivered about 500 babies. was pretty much the poster child for the successful small-town family doc. And over the course of about three weeks in my practice, every time I went in, it felt like somebody was choking me, like a, a rear-naked choke, they call it, in um, UFC. And um, I took 30 days off in a sabbatical, hoping I could recharge my batteries. And the day I came back, hoping to feel better, it was something that snapped right down my middle. And I realized only in, in after the event, years after the event, that that was burnout. But from that point forward, I couldn't be a full-time practicing clinical family doc. So you're a guy that realized it's time. And what Well, did you- I literally couldn't continue. Yeah, well, what did Einstein say? Well, Einstein, you're talking about the insanity trap? Yep. Einstein says that um, in order to get new results, you have to take new actions. Right, or repeating them, basically. Oh, the insanity trap? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That's the dilemma physicians and other extenders, providers have, and nurses as well. I mean, it's uh, across many lines of medicine. It's a demanding um, exercise every day we get up and go in. Uh, we take a lot of burden, 
and we try to take a lot of burden off the patient. Now, you mentioned something I think was really important, and um, I, I think although this audience is both uh, uh, at the provider level and just the listener level, uh, our dear um, patients and uh, listeners, I, I thought it was particularly compelling when you were talking about we put patients first. Tell us about that. Well, it's the first of the two prime directives of medicine, the patient comes first. And that makes absolute sense. As a matter of fact, when you're with patients, the patient has to come first. The challenge is that is supposed to have an off switch. Every doctor at some point in time needs to learn how to shut that off so they can put themselves first, not when they're at work, but put themselves first when they're not at work so that they can be in the best shape possible when they are seeing patients. It's sort of like on the airlines when they tell you, hey, if the masks drop out of the ceiling, put your own on first. You're right. And uh, I'm going to just kind of set the stage here, and then I'm going to introduce uh, another guest we have here. Um, two and a half hours of lectures today, broken up an hour and a half and then another hour, and uh, really didn't repeat much. There was some overlap, but it was a conscious overlap to make a point. And that stimulates discussion. And so with me today, um, I, I think we're going to just stay anonymous today. Uh, but an important physician, he has a strong academic background. He's now in private practice. Um, I've known him for years, uh, well over a decade. Looked up to him, always admired him. Um, and um, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Drummond... And Dr. Anonymous here go back and forth for a little bit. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stay out of it. And uh, I just think that uh, the conversation I stumbled into with them uh, had to be uh, part of a podcast. So here you go. Hello. Dr. X. Dr. X. Well, one of the things that we were talking about before he turned his tape recorder on was the struggle of being a leader, talking to doctors who are obviously under stress, and not finding yourself challenged to do something to help them. Exactly. And um, one of the things that I was saying is um, that it's so common, so universal, we tend to not see it. It's sort of like talking to a fish about water. The fish says, what's this water you're talking about? And that is the doctors will only focus on the things they don't want, things they're trying to avoid. Exactly. And if if you are facing them... Um, you might say something simplistic like, well, tell me what you want and I'll help you get it. <laughs> but it's hard to see just how stuck they are until you're in that situation, right? Well, it's correct. I've had uh, several leadership jobs, and I used to think that maybe being a leader would make it easier because then I get to do more of what I want, what I think is correct. But I find that there's more leadership above me. There's never, there's, you're never actually autonomous. Which meant uh, two things to me. One is that the stress for me never goes away. Now I've just taken on a different level of stress from above. So now I have to mediate not only my own stress, but the stress of the people that are assigned to me. That's leadership. That's leadership. <laughs> but it's very difficult to lead if you don't have the, the ability to lead. Um, from an administrative staff, in the sense that you can make a change. You have the power to actually change the way things are going. Exactly. And often, you actually, you have 
you really don't have the power to change how things are going above you, but you do have a way of defining problems and having defining or helping people see how things really are. That's what a chair can do. And and you're right. Um, anybody in a large organization, especially your your frontline working doctors beneath you, and you, if you're a chair in a large organization, you're all in the middle of a bureaucracy. And that's one of the things that you never learn how to deal with in medical school or residency, how to navigate a bureaucracy and how to manage your boss. It's one of the things that I've had to develop remedial, if you want, remedial resources for for my people. But one of the things we were talking about earlier is you said, I'm with my doctors. They're disgruntled. They're burned out. I can see that that's going on. I ask them, hey, tell me what you want, and I'll help you go get it. And they're at a total loss when you ask them that exactly. question. It, it, in, in fact, it is to how do we define call? How do you want to take call? How do you want to do the bonus system? How much, how much vacation do you want? Do you prefer vacation over salary? Do you, want your, your, uh, do you want more vacation and less money? You can't have both. Do you, want, do you value the time away from the job? Or do you value how your job is here or both? And what doctors will naturally do when you ask them those kind of questions, and if I, if I was going to create a diagram for this, you're creating the conditions. You're con- creating the outline, the, 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 the structure of the square in which they have to color. You're saying, we've got this much money, this much time. How are we going to do it? What the doctors will then do is tell you what they don't want. And you're going to try to switch them off what they don't want to get what they want. And this is almost impossible for doctors to do because of the way that we're conditioned. Exactly. So what you're saying is that the, the, the employees, the doctors, whoever I'm supervising, can't tell me what they want. All they can tell me is what they don't want. They'll start with what they don't want, and we can't let them stop there for the simple reason is that you can, get, you can avoid everything you don't want. I'll say that again. You can avoid everything you don't want, and you still won't get what you want because the only way to get what you want is to know what you want and go get it. So what we have to do is constantly be taking doctors out of their diagnose and treat mode. Diagnose means what's the problem, what's wrong, what don't you want. And treat mode, we need to swing them into not what would you run away from, but what would you run towards. So within this constraint, time and money, right, within this constraint of time and money, how do you want that to look? Because what we're trying to do is get them to focus on what they want. That's the deliverable, but they're not used to thinking that way. Exactly. And it takes persistence on your part because they'll, they'll dig their heels in and say, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. All I know is that when I reached, would reach the limit of dealing with, with doctors who don't know what they want, I would retreat back into the operating room and just take care of patients. Right. And uh, that, was a great, uh, that was a great relief. Well, leadership is a challenge. And leadership is completely different than, again, diagnose and treat of clinical medicine. Finding the problem and fixing it is actually quite simple compared to growing people. Let me tell you the story I was going to tell you before we started the tape. Back when I was first in my coaching business, I was setting myself up to be a small business coach in my county. And I got a list of all the entrepreneurs in town from the Chamber of Commerce, and I phoned them all up. And I said, hey, I'm not here to sell you anything, but I've only got one question for you. It'll take you two minutes, and it's a trick question. And interestingly enough, people would hold on to answer that. I said, the trick question is, what are the three biggest challenges to your business this quarter? I met a guy who 
New Holland uh, tractors. You know, New Holland, they're the blue ones. John Deere's the green ones, right? Kubota's the orange one. New Holland is the, is the blue ones. This guy owned three tractor dealerships. I had a lovely conversation with him. I thought he was so cool, I asked him if he'd go out to, to a cup of coffee with me. And I asked him this question. I said, what do you like about New Holland tra- tractors? And he said, oh, I don't care anything about tractors. And I said, wait a minute. You own three tractor dealerships in three different towns. What do you mean you don't care anything about tractors? He said, look, I'm a good Christian man. It's, it's my ministry to grow bigger people. So I have found that this New Holland tractor dealership is a great way to grow people because I give them more responsibility. I put them in, in positions of authority, and I'm able to do what I've been put here to do. It was a pure leadership and growing people experience for him. And so it's difficult sometimes when all of us are stuck in problem-solving mode to realize that as a leader, your job is to grow the people. And one of the growth points is moving them from, I know what you don't want, what do you want? And let's work together inside this constraint to make that happen. It's funny you should say that because I saw a glimpse of that in your presentation after lunch because I'm contemplating going back into academics and trying to help a fellowship program that needs help. But how can I, and I've been a program director before, how can I do this differently than I did before? Well, the, the key is the, the, the changes that are important for a physician to move from clinician Right, diagnose, treat, give orders, expect people to obey, right? And leader, which is to create the context where the team solves the team's problems. The difference is the difference between giving orders and asking questions. So right now your eyes are open because of your previous experience about what doesn't work. Are you with me? Yes. You would go back and do things fundamentally different anyhow. But again, don't let them off the hook, okay? When you draw the constraint, this is how much money and how much time we have. How, it always starts with what or how, by the way. How would you like to flesh this out? What do you recommend that we do? State the question and then be quiet. Let them solve the problem. Yes. So I envision myself a year from now asking a new group of residents or fellows, what do you want out of the pain fellowship? What do you want uh, in, in this part of your career, your training. When you decided to come here, when you decided to apply to this program, and when you got accepted and you were excited to come here, what was it in your head that had you excited? What are you looking to get out of this? Three years from now, what do you, how do you want things to be different, and what do you want to learn here? Okay, that's a better way to say it, but yes. You have, you have to coax them, right? Because uh, in most cases, um, when a doctor is interviewing for a position, they're just doing pick me, pick me. They don't know what they want. You're, you're actually getting them to think about it deeper than they ever did before they applied. Okay, but that, sort of, that was the intuitive question that came out of your presentation this afternoon yeah. that I had. So I see that. You know, and, and what I would ask any leader, what I would ask anybody I'm recruiting in any position, including um, nurses and other people in your staff, right? Tell me why this job is like your ideal job. Like, why, are you, why, are you, why would you be fired up to work here and work with my team? Why would you be fired up to come back in and be a department chair again? Right. I just thought of something else that relates to that, and that's the corollary of the flip. I interviewed with the dean for a chair, a chair job, and I stayed as a chair for seven years there. And I was successful financially. I finally left when it was time, when I couldn't make any additional 
positive changes. But I asked the dean, well, what do you want from me? What do you want out of a chair? What do you want as an anesthesiology chair? And he couldn't answer the question. Right, because nobody's ever asked him. He just needs somebody to fill the seat. That's right. So I gave gave him some, uh, like I figured this is my opportunity. I'll give him three things, and I'll define my mission and and define if I can be successful or not. Right, because if he hasn't got an idea and he just needs a warm body, that actually is carte blanche. You don't know what his limits are, but you can actually write your job so description. So I wrote my job description, yep. and, so, and, that, and I was successful at that. Yep. When I could no longer make additional changes, I left. You never, never, um, never give people credit for knowing what they want, especially in healthcare or in a physician right. practice or physician leadership structure, because most people are very unconscious about it. Uh, they're running away from what they don't want, and they're just looking for a warm body to fill the seat. Right, but that was a disappointment to me because I expected somebody to know. That was a disappointment to me. That's because they're above you in the ch- in the in the structure, and they should know better. Correct. <laughs> Let, let's just talk about physician leadership for just a second. Um, the way most organizations grow, their physician leaders these days, and I'm going to talk about a um, a, a care providing organization in the community. Normally, it's small practices in town coming together under the leadership of a hospital or a hospital system, right? It used to be 20 small practices of 10 doctors, and now it's 200. Now it's 200 doctors that are now employed by this hospital system, right? At some point in time, they'll need a raft of physician leaders to occupy the physician leadership structures, and they'll say, who wants to be the medical director for these practices? And 70% of the doctors who put their hand up and say, pick me, are doing so only because they're burned out. They have one question. Does it mean I have to see more patients? And you're going to say, no. And they're going to say, I'll take it. (laughs) So physician leadership is a tried and true, or or physician burnout is a tried and true path to physician leadership. And there's no reason to believe that doctors make good leaders. Actually, I have every reason to believe they make terrible leaders, naturally and automatically. So to look up into a chain of command and find an incompetent department chief, uh, an incompetent CMO, who took the job not because they were involved in a desire to make people better leaders, to create a context for success. They just took it because they wanted it on their resume and aren't qualified and don't have a vision is extremely common. So now the question arises, if if somebody is as an employee, for example, let's, so let's step back from the leadership and look at the employee, not the leader. What does the employee do when the employee doesn't necessarily agree with the mission statement or not maybe the stated statement, but what actually is the the job description? Yeah. When I talk about jobs uh, from a leadership perspective, about finding the right people to fill your jobs, from your perspective, you figuring out what job you want to take, the most important thing to do is to start with what I call an ideal practice description, an ideal job description. And that's to take some time with some paper and pen and write down the answers to this question. If I had a magic wand... In an ideal world, if I could create it for myself, what kind of patients would I be seeing doing what kind of stuff for what kind of hours and what kind of pay with what kind of team and what kind of organization where in the world? And nobody ever asks a doctor that. It's just the first question I ask all of my coaching clients because my job fundamentally is to help them get more of what they want. And the ideal job description is the key to that. Doctors really only know what they don't want. 
because, again, we diagnose and treat. We see what's wrong. We run away from it. And you can avoid everything you don't want. You still won't get what you want because the only way to get what you want, I'm just going to slow it down. The only way to get what you want is to know what you want and go get it. So when you're interviewing somebody for a job, it would be really important to ask them the question, hey, what's your ideal job description? Same thing. In an ideal world, what would you want to be doing? And how well does this job fit your ideal job description? Now, when you're interviewing, you're trying to decide a job to take, you must have your ideal job description with you or you will make a suboptimal decision. If it works out, it's pure luck. But we're going to take the luck out of it. So take your ideal job description with you, and then what you're going to do after you've had a chance to interview is create a Venn diagram. I call it the Venn of happiness. One circle is this job that's right in front of me, and the other circle is my ideal job. And what I want to know is in that Venn diagram, how much overlap is there between this job and your ideal job? So, for instance, you could ask the same question if you were interviewing. Now that you've had a chance to talk, what other questions do you have? And if I was to build this Venn diagram, just draw it down on a piece of paper. How much overlap do you think there is between that job, this job and, and your ideal? Because we want this to be an ideal job for you so you can put down nice deep roots and we can be a really good team together for a really long time. Got it. And you said today that an ideal job would have a 60% overlap. Well, if you look at the, at the Venn of, Ven of happiness, uh, it's important to have an ideal job description and to try and hit that as cleanly as possible, but nobody gets 100%. So that Venn of happiness will never be 100%. Whatever it is, you want to be satisfied with that. And it's, that kind of satisfaction starts at about 60%. So a lot of times I'll talk to somebody. So, for instance, right now you're a pure clinician, right? Yes. And you're contemplating going back into administration. Yes. Okay, so I say, okay, great. If we contemplate a blended job, clinical, administrative, how much clinical, how much administrative would you want? Well, I've defined that, actually. Uh, 30% administrative. And, and I have 70% to have, clinical. Yes, yeah, so I have to have that 30% supported so I am not cutting into my other time. Great. And I can actually get the job done. So let's do a hypothetical. The Venn diagram works great as a hypothetical. If I could find you a 70-30 job. Right, And let's say that you're still in the middle of bureaucracy, because you will be as a, as a department chair. If I could find you a 70-30 job, and you think of that in terms of your ideal job description, how much overlap would 70-30 be with your ideal? That would be 60 or 70% overlap. So when I'm coaching somebody about taking a new job... And we know what their ideal job description is, and they've had a chance to ask enough questions in their interview that they can give me a legitimate measure of the overlap. 60 or 70% is a green light from my perspective. I would ask, do you think there's any other positions that would give you more? Because 60 or 70% is a great place to start. You're just fine-tuning from that point. Right. Now, I, have enough, I know what to look for right. in, in a job and how it works. Um, the reality I've noticed, though, over the years is that you never know what the job is going to be until you do it for a while. Right. So you may have – so in a private practice setting or where you're not working for the government or in a university, you're going to have 30 to 60 days trial period. Right. And I take that very seriously and decide if you're going to stay. And you take that very seriously on both sides. If you're the person getting the new job, you want to reevaluate every week or two to see if it's hanging in there at 60 or 70% or whether something took a while to come out, like your boss is a psychopath and you didn't realize it right away. You're also doing the same thing with your new employees. How are they working out? Do we want them to, to go beyond their 
probationary. Right. So what I've noticed is um, it's you're making a mistake if you stay in a job you don't like that you can't fix. Right. Um, and during the the break-in period, you may find that uh, it's, it's maybe this isn't a great fit, and it probably won't get better. It's not a failure to move, or to, to move to another job. Not uh, at all. But you got to be – the best way to avoid getting trapped into jobs is to not to take extra commitments. So what I would advise residents is don't buy a house for the next two to three years. Don't uh, take a lot of debt on be prepared to move again. Well, and what I'll say is you can take a lot of that. Sorry. Go ahead. So I hear what you're saying about don't buy a house for a couple of years, but what you're doing is talking about risk mitigation for somebody who isn't using this ideal job description that we're talking about. So what I would say is that, that and again, I teach everybody this. I, I realized I had to teach this real early on when about 30% of my clients actually needed to switch jobs to get better. So um, if you have an ideal job description, if you interview the way that we teach, if you come back with a really good idea of the overlap, you mitigate a lot of that risk. And I think that um, you'll know right away whether or not, number one, you're going to accept the offer, and you'll know before the 90 days are up whether or not you're going to stay there. Good. Same for you, right? When you go into your academic position again, you're going to go with your eyes open, having you have water under your bridge as an academic leader, right? Yes. You know where the, the, the places where you grind your gears with your people. I would just stay in questioning mode and always be reevaluating that vent of happiness. Exactly. So I would recommend to residents, uh, they have families now, and uh, older physicians have families too, is to put your family first when you make a move. And be pre- be prepared to move if you have to. Well, if we want to add even more power to this, most doctors are absolutely not ready for this when I meet them. But if you if you take your ideal practice description, your ideal job description, and blow it out into an ideal life description, and ask yourself what role does my job play in my larger life, then all of a sudden things can get even juicier. And you would definitely want your significant other and your family in on those discussions. But most doctors aren't ready to go there because they need to take the baby steps first. Let me ask you. uh, I'm an old doctor. What about the new doctors, the millennials? Do they look at this differently? They're already thinking like this. They're thinking about preserving their their happiness. They're already thinking about this because work hour restrictions have made it so that their residency life doesn't stomp. Their residency responsibilities don't stomp their life into submission over the course of the three or however many years they're in it. My age, 60, right? Uh, I can remember working 125, 130-hour weeks, right? That stomped the living life out of my life. So when we had no work hour restrictions and our residency was so stressful that we didn't have time for a life, we had to develop a life after we got out, after we typically had a relationship and kids and were in a job. The millennials come out with children. Right, they've, they've topped out at something like 60 hours a week. They, were, they didn't have the life squished out of them, so they arrive with a different set of priorities. And in groups of people like me, baby boomers like me, gunners, typically what ends up happening is the fact that they were not conditioned as hard as we were, people will say things like they don't know how to work and they don't care. That's not true. They know how to work in a different way, and they care in a different way, and they don't lose perspective the way that we lost perspective back in the day. That is insightful. 
That's a good take. They're home. just different. Now, the challenge is for the healthcare system is the redefinition of what an FTE is, right? So you get a millennial coming into your practice and you tell them what a guy like me does. This is what full time is here and this is what you get paid. And they look at the number of hours and they say, I'm not going to do that. Can I take point eight? <laughs> and, and then what happens is you won't be able to hire millennials unless you go to point eight. And then as soon as you hire one and let them go point eight, the next person in line for point eight is your 60-year-old doc like me that says, hey, can I get that deal too? And all of a sudden, you've, you've actually worsened your physician shortage by lowering the requirements for a full-time FTE. Does that make sense? Yes. That's going on in all organizations across the country right now. Well, that was a really good discussion. I think a, a couple of, uh, I guess, hot buttons here is uh, you and I uh, – and our guest um, across the table from me were of a different era. Yep. And I think something that I uh, spoke on yesterday was I love millennials. In, in a lot of ways, I was a millennial once, too. I think we all were millennials in a different way. It's all adaptability. And um, I was basically a hippie. And, you know, I was perceived as lazy, not caring, et cetera, et cetera. No, 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 I was just a ski bomb. Um, and now millennials get some of the same labels, different, uh, different words maybe, but um, unfair. And I, I think it's unfair because even though they were told everybody gets a trophy, et cetera, like that, it, it isn't that they took that necessarily to heart. What I do think, and I'm going to kind of quote Simon Sinek here, um, they were kind of dealt a bad, bad hand, and it doesn't make them feel better when they get a trophy and they know they didn't earn it. It makes them feel worse. And so I, I guess what the take-home message for our young doctors is, um, you know, just like you said, um, put put your family first and put your priorities first because – Burnout and suicide amongst uh, physicians is a big deal. We lose an entire medical school class, and I'm talking about all four years. Um, so it would be like Harvard's uh, medical school class, one through four, every year. We lose it to suicide. That's over a, a physician a day. So we're just going to have to start rethinking. And Dr. Drummond, that's... Uh, I mean that's great coaching, and um, I know uh, I know you appreciate it across the table from me, Doctor. Do you have any closing comments? Yeah, I think that um, the ideal job description is probably the most um, important concept. Because here's here's what I found: nobody asks you this question. Uh, when you get out and you're going to get a job, they want you to fulfill their job description. If you don't have in your mind what you want, you don't know whether that matches or not. And if you know what your ideal job description is and you're on a path towards that, burnout doesn't happen. Correct. I, I really want um, the listeners to go to YouTube and uh, check out uh, Dr. Drummond, Happy and MD. And he said it earlier um, how to get in touch with them, but go ahead and do it again. It's thehappymd.com, so you got to put the T-H-E on the front. If you don't, you go to a porn site. So <laughs> thehappymd.com. And just to be clear, I'm not the happy MD. The website's a place where you can go to get the tools so you could be a happy MD, D-O-P-A nurse practitioner. And RN. And so, RN. Um, Dr. Cross the Table, do you have any closing, closing comments? Greetings. 
This was a great experience. Uh, I used to be a little bit skeptical about the burnout, but I have experienced it at least twice. At some point, you've got to start listening to yourself. And on that, I thank my guests, and um, we uh, look forward to um, hopefully having them on again. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's really neat to sit in a big room and listening, listening to something other than technical medicine, you know, c- clinical medicine. I'm oh, into that. Oh, God, it look crazy <laughs> after a while. But um, once again, thanks, and we'll see you all soon. I know, I know, no. That was uh, it, that was great, wasn't it? So, it's fun. And if you um, have a suggestion for another podcast, let me know. I'm just going to start uh, putting them out and uh, various topics. And I really want to hear from you. Um, go ahead and uh, go through Ray Lane or uh, one of the uh, ASIP folks and give me your suggestions. And if you want to be on a podcast, no problem. Uh, you know, give me your topic and we'll work through it and. We'll get you on Skype. This is not a technology uh, black hole. <laughs> we we work it out. And if you're even interested in learning how to do a podcast, I'd be happy to work with you. So um, just give us a holler, and we appreciate your support of ASIP. Don't forget the pack, and please don't forget uh, annual dues and the like. It keeps us alive. It keeps that blood pumping. So uh, we're looking forward to a lot of meetings coming up. I have to tell you, these regional meetings can be very impactful. Don't forget about them. We have the Midwest one coming up, uh, FSIP's coming up, and uh, the West Virginia one is uh, soon. We have a cadaver course. Uh, it's not a bad idea, even if you're uh, a Uber um, injector, if you're kind of a ninja. Um, going to these cadaver courses, I, every time I go there and teach one, I stand at some of these stations and I go, wow, <laughs> okay, I, I really, I, I learned something important here because it's perspective and it's fellowship. In the evenings, we get together and talk and have a have a pretty good time. And, of course, I ambush people with my uh, podcasting. So um, uh, don't hesitate to uh, get in contact with me if you'd like and paid information podcast. That's pretty much where I'm at. Or uh, go through Ray Lane, and you know I'm pretty easy to get to. Uh, I want to I want to talk to you if you have something interesting to talk about. But otherwise, you know, keep doing what you're doing the the right thing for the right reasons. All right, talk to you later.